What's your biggest fear? What's your biggest fear? And if you immediately thought snakes, join the club. I hate snakes. I'm like Indiana Jones. Remember in the movie? Shock! I hate snakes. I hate them. Right? He just hates, I hate snakes. I hate snakes so much that every time I see a snake, I want to kill it. If you're an animal activist, I apologize. I know it's not a godly response on my part because God made snakes too. But every time I see one, I want to kill it. I hate snakes. I just hate them. I also hate spiders. Right? Do you have the reaction when you see a spider? Like it just sends chills down your, maybe you're not afraid of spiders. You could teach me a thing or two. There are a lot of people in my house very afraid of spiders. And what's funny is every time a spider shows up, they call dad to come kill it. I am the designated spider killer, and I don't like spiders any more than the rest of them. Do you ever have to kill a spider that's so scary, you just got to like slap it and not look at it? You know, like the big bulbous ones with like the big old butt, you just kind of slap it, and you feel its remains on your hand, and you just kind of pray as you walk, and you kind of, it's too much, right? We're afraid of snakes, we're afraid of spiders. I'm also afraid of drywalling, I just want to be honest, you know, I hate drywalling. Anybody else hate drywalling? How many of you have never drywalled? Show me your hand if you've never, keep it that way, all right? Drywalling is terrible, it's no fun, I'm horrified of it. Why am I horrified of drywalling? Because I always screw it up, right? When I screw it up, I have to eat humble pie and call the professionals to come and fix my mess. Drywalling is horrifying, but there is a deeper fear that underlies our fear of drywalling or our fear of spiders or our fear of snakes, and that is the fear of death, right? At the end of the day, we're basically afraid to die. Why are we afraid of snakes? Because one of them might be poisonous. When they bite us, we might get sick and we'll die. Same thing with spiders, right? You've seen tarantulas, even though they're not poisonous. They look like, like I bet you tarantulas are secretly poisonous. You know, they're just like, yeah, right. Just you handle me and ping, they're going to sting you like they're a black widow, right? Why are we afraid of these creatures? Because we think they might kill us. Um, the same thing, like you could say like the same thing applies to pizza. I'm kind of afraid when it comes to pizza. You're like, why would you be afraid of pizza? Well, I'm going to eat all the pizza. And then when I've eaten all the pizza, there'll be no more pizza. And then when there's no more pizza, I'll have nothing to eat and I might die. <laughs> right? Fear underlies, or the fear of death underlies all other fears. Now, here's what's interesting about the fear of death. It's never going away. Right? Like, it's never going to leave you. You're always going to be afraid to die. I think as you mature and as you grow in your walk with Jesus, you might get to the point where you're not as afraid as you used to be. But I've still never met anybody who's like, I'm, bring it on, let's go, I'm excited about that. Right, like, let's do it. Death is horrifying. And the horror that underlies the concept of death is not going anywhere. So I figure it's um, time for us to figure out a strategy on how to live in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. And uh, fortunately for you, that strategy today is found in Genesis chapter 42. Believe it or not, we will find a strategy for learning how to live in the midst of the, the valley of the shadow of death, courtesy of Joseph's ongoing story. Here's Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves with their faces to the ground before him. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. 
they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your, son, your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless you bring your youngest brother here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against this boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave order to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Sheol in the Hebrew is their word for hell. Um, it literally means the underworld. So at this stage in um, Bible history, in Jewish theology, the concept of hell was very loosely developed, uh, and they would refer to hell as Sheol, as the underworld. The belief was that when you died, you basically joined your, you were gathered to your ancestors. You joined your fathers, you joined your mothers, you were gathered to your ancestors. That's why they would lay them out in uh, open tombs and let the body decay and then collect all the bones, put them beneath the burial beds in a, like a 
like a big collection area where all the bones of the generations would be gathered together. And so they believed that you would descend to the underworld. And so um, Jacob here at the end is saying, listen, if you take Benjamin, okay, he was Joseph's brother from the same mom. If you take him and something happens to him, you will take my gray hairs down with you to Sheol. You will literally drag my down to hell. This is... Um, on the surface, not a very encouraging chapter. You're like, I know, Todd, you always try and give God glory and try and encourage us. Good luck with this one. Don't worry, I found a thing or two. Rest easy. Here is um, keystone habit number six out of Genesis 42. I promise you 14 keystone habits throughout the course of this series that as you learn to apply those habits to your life, you will begin learning to live like the impossible dream is coming true for you. So here is keystone habit number six. You'll see the definition of a keystone habit behind me on screen. The reason the definition is always there is to remind you that a keystone habit is specifically one of those habits that will cascade into other areas of your life. It is a habit so profound that it will affect the many other habits in your life. So keystone habit number six, Remember, act, and don't hold grudges. Remember, act, and don't hold grudges. So in today's sermon, I'm going to give you nine big ideas to help you flesh out that keystone habit. So that's what's on tap today. Nine big ideas to help you flesh out keystone habit number six. Keystone habit number six, remember, act, and don't hold grudges. Here now we have nine big ideas to help you flesh that out from Genesis chapter 42. Big idea number one. Remember, disaster always strikes, so do what you need to do, keeping in mind that everybody's just trying to survive, and while you're at it, stop letting your past control you. That is big idea number one. I'll unpack that idea for you, starting with the first word, disaster. Disaster always strikes. How do I know? Because of verse one. Disaster has struck Jacob and his sons in the land of Canaan. They are starving to death, they and their entire clan with them. And this disaster is so profound that they literally can't do anything about it. And so they are sitting together in their father's camp, staring at one another, terrified. How do we know? Verse 1, why do you look at one another? The implication here is, why are you just sitting around wondering what to do? But there's an interesting implication buried in the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew here, why do you look at one another? Listen to it carefully. Islama titra'u. I grew up in Israel, that's why I understand Hebrew. In case you're wondering, like, how does he know all this Hebrew? I was raised there. So we moved there when I was six and a half, and I lived there till I was 14. So Hebrew is my second language. So in Hebrew, why are you looking at one another? Is lama titra'u. Lama, why? Titra'u, are you looking? What's interesting about the word titra'u is it comes from the root lir'ot. Lir'ot means to see. Lama titra'u. Do you hear it there? Lir'ot titra'u. Lama titra'u. Why are you looking at one another? What are you seeing? But what's interesting about Hebrew is that it is a language of implication and double entendre. Hebrew is such an interesting language that um, it doesn't even use vowels. Okay? When you write it out, there are no vowels in Hebrew. The vowels are implied from the context. So not only do you have to understand what the word means, you have to understand how to read the word based on the context in which you find it. The other thing that's implied often in Hebrew, because it is a language that loves poetry, it is a language that loves symbolism, it is a language that loves repetition, often when you read a Hebrew word, you understand what it is from its context, but you understand what it means from its context. And what's interesting about the word titra'u, lama titra'u, what's interesting about the root lir'ot, to see, is that it shares its roots with the one word ra. Do you hear it in there? Litra'ot. Lira'ot, ra, ra, is the ultimate root at the basis of this word that means to see. 
Lamatit ra'u. What does ra at its most basic form mean? It means horror. It means terror. It means fear. It means bad. How are you doing? How's it going? If you're having a not so bad day, you'd say, lo naga, lo naga, it's not horrible. So when you read this, understanding Hebrew, you go, they're not just looking at each other. They are looking at each other in horror. They are terrified. Why are you terrified? The reason they're terrified is because they're about to starve. They're about to starve. Here's the point. Bad times keep coming. How many famines are there in the biblical story? You can think of dozens, right? It seems almost cyclical. Like every time you relax, here comes another famine to drive us back to Egypt. Here comes another famine to lay waste to the land. Here comes another famine used by God to discipline his people. Famine after famine after famine. How does this apply to us? I can't think of the last time a famine struck our culture. But bad things keep happening. Can somebody testify that that's been true? Or is it just me? You're like, why do bad things keep happening? They just do. They keep happening. Bad times keep coming. So, verse 2, Go down to Egypt and buy grain there that we may live and not die. Here's the application for you. Um, the next time you find yourself in survival mode, like the family of Israel found themselves in survival mode here in Genesis 42, next time you find yourself there, do something. How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation where you're so terrified that like a frightened animal you freeze? Anybody identify with this? Animal's running, 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 running. It freezes. Why? So that the predator might miss it. I want to invite you to act through your fear. Next time you find yourself in a desperate situation, go down to Egypt and buy grain. Do something. Now, you might have spent some time in church, and you might be thinking, yes, Todd, but doesn't the Bible teach us to be still and know that he is God? Yes, it does teach us that in Psalm 46.10. It also teaches us in Philippians 2, the words of Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So in fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. Do something, knowing that God is God and you're not, next time you find yourself in a desperate spot. Here's what I love about this. Um, everybody's in the same boat. How do I know? Well, because I read verse 5. Look at verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy, here it is, among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. They weren't the only ones who had to flee south to buy grain. Can I make a philosophical or theological point here? Can I? Somebody give me permission to make a philosophical theological point. Here's the philosophical theological point. The whole world is starving. Our whole world is starving. You will never meet anybody who is operating from a place of complete wholeness. What does Pastor Todd always say? Every time he gets to make the point that everybody is in the same boat. If everybody is in the same boat and nobody is operating from a place of complete wholeness, we ought to cut ourselves and each other a little bit of... Yes, you've been listening. The whole world is starving. <laughs> this is why Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life calls himself that in John 6.35. <laughs> Jesus is the bread of life. So you know what? You don't need a better strategy. A better you is not the answer. May all personal development preaching 
perish from God's church. Right? A better you is not the answer. You know what you need? You need a better Savior. Put even more simply, you need the right Savior. If you're starving, <laughs> you need the bread of life. This is what your friends, neighbors, co-workers, and peers who live with you in this beautiful city, who are starving, this is what they need. The bread of life. When disaster strikes, when you're in survival mode, when you don't know what to do, maybe like Jacob, you're a prisoner of your past. Don't wave at me. Can you resonate with this? Do you notice how he's a prisoner to his... I got the Holy Spirit right now. He's a prisoner to his past. He's not sending Benjamin down to Egypt because he's afraid something bad will happen to him. You're like, Todd, what's the big deal with not sending Benjamin down to Egypt? All of the grain they got in Egypt, they would have brought back on their pack animals. To not allow one more man to go south, the Holy Spirit right now, means like at least six other bags on his pack animal don't get to come back to feed the family of Israel. And each of these men were shepherds. They would have known how to lead a train of pack animals, either mules or if they were wealthy enough, camels. And so by not allowing Benjamin to go, Jacob is deciding to forsake perhaps up to 20 bags of grain with which to allow his family to survive. The pain of his past is affecting his present in a negative way. You, as one of God's children, do not have to live that way anymore. You do not have to allow the pain of your past to govern your present or affect your future. Somebody say hallelujah. Why? Because Jesus is the answer to disaster. Jesus is the answer to your questions of survival. Jesus is the answer to your uncertainty. Jesus is the answer to your past. Friends, Jesus is at work. So here we come to point number two. Remember, in light of the fact that Jesus is at work, that dreams do come true, even if sometimes they take a while. You know, and even if you don't really know what's about to happen, I want to invite you to remember that redemption is breaking through and you are not who you used to be. I get out all of this as our text continues in verse 6. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their noses to the ground. Does anybody in this house remember the first week in this sermon series? In Genesis chapter 37, verse 6, where Joseph said to his brothers, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph's brothers bowing in the Hebrew with their noses in the dirt is the fulfillment of Joseph's dream from Genesis chapter 37. The point is this, dreams do come true. Do you have an impossible dream? Again, whenever I make an application from the Old Testament to your life today, when I dare to take that creative leap, I make sure that I'm not preaching to you a one-time occurrence of something you can bank on. Okay, so I will give you a few examples here. If you have an impossible dream, you have reason to believe that it will come true. Why? Because of Joseph and his bowing brothers. Because of Moses and his ten plagues. Remember that? God sends Moses into Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he says, I will strike the Egyptians with ten plagues. Did Moses have any guarantee that God was going to come through? Somebody shout at me. No, he did not. 
God promised to intervene, but until he did, I bet you Moses was worried that he wouldn't. You got Joseph and his bowing brothers, Moses and his ten plagues. You got Joshua and the walls of Jericho. Yes, you do. Just march around it seven times and then give a shout of praise and blow the trumpet in Zion and I will drop those walls. You have the widow and her dead son and the prophet Elijah praying for his resurrection in 1 Kings 17. Remember that story? I'm in it in my devotions this week. Prophet takes the dead son upstairs, lays him down, lies down on top of him three times, praying to the Lord, oh Lord, let his life return to him. Okay, it's not just great cosmic questions here that the Lord is, you know, in his grace deciding to answer when it comes to our dreams. Sometimes, sometimes he brings widows, dead sons back to life. Yes, he does. Jairus and his sick daughter in Mark chapter 5 come into Jesus to beg him to heal her. On their way to their house, the servants come and tell Jairus, your daughter is dead. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. (laughs) You have an impossible dream? Do not fear, only believe. It's been 20 years since you were sold a slave. 20, who am I preaching to this morning? 20 years you've been in captivity? Do not fear. Only believe. Like Joseph's brothers with your nose in the dirt, with no idea how this story is going to turn out, do not fear. Only believe. Why? Because redemption is breaking through and you are not who you used to be. How do I know that redemption is breaking through? And how do I know that you are no longer who you used to be? Because, verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. He calls them spies. They say, no, we're not. He says, yes, you are. They say, no, we're not. We are the sons of one man, 12 sons. The youngest is with his father, and one is no more. Let me point out verse verse 9 here real quick. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. You should be going, if you paid attention last week, wait a minute, I thought he forgot all of his sorrows and his father's house. Remember in chapter 41, verse 51, he literally says, and you caused me in your goodness, God, to forget all my sorrows and my father's house. Remember how much he forgot his sorrow? He forgot it so much that what did he name his eldest son? Does anybody remember from last week? He named him Menashe. And remember what Menashe means? You make me rest in forgetfulness. So you're thinking, which is it, Todd? Did he forget or did he remember? Well, let's build it as an equation. If in chapter 41, verse 51, we see that Joseph was forgetful of the pain of his past. And then in chapter 42, verse 9, we see that Joseph remembered. To me, this equals, you know what? He had actually forgotten the pain of his past over the course of the last 20 years in Egypt where he had been busy building the new life that God had given him. How many of you rejoice knowing that God can so redeem you that even a life in a foreign land can become something beautiful by God's grace to the point that you actually forget where you're from? That's great if you come from a broken family. Great news if you come from a shattered family line. You can go, you know what? 
God can cause me to forget the pain of my family's past, and He can cause me to prosper. Somebody say hallelujah. He can cause you to prosper. He really forgot. God actually healed him of the resentment that he would have borne towards those brothers who sold him as a slave. He was, receive it, he was so busy building his new life that he didn't have time to be resentful. Ooh, that'll preach good. Can I ask you this question? Do you think it's possible that the word who would become flesh was already at work in Joseph's life, seeking and saving him who was lost and then working through him to effect the renewal of all things? Do you think it's possible that God at work through Joseph brought hope not only to the Mediterranean basin of 1750 BCE as it struggled under the weight of famine, but do you think it's possible that through that same man's story, God is bringing hope to you today? Do you think that verse 13, and one is no more, is just a sad admission from a bunch of guilt-ridden, beat-down, starving guys? Or do you think that those words, one is no more, might have been prophecy? Because Joseph, receive it, church, the hated brother, the victimized, forgotten slave, truly doesn't exist anymore. He doesn't exist anymore. Who is this seated on the throne before his brothers? May I remind you, the name that Pharaoh gave him when he elevated Joseph to the position of grand vizier of all of Egypt was Zaphenat Panea. It is Zaphenat Panea, not Joseph, who is seated before them. And oh, church, wait till you hear what Zaphenat Panea means. The first person, do you have the Holy Spirit right now? The first person to interpret the name Zaphenat Panea was the Saint Jerome who interpreted the first Bible ever and he named Zaphenat Panea Salvator Mundi. And every single one of you who understands Latin knows that this sermon just took a very good turn. Salvator Mundi. You know what the Coptic Christians interpreted Zaphanat Panea as, they put it this way, his name is Ptompene. Ptompene in the Coptic means, boy, you're going to be glad you hired a gospel preaching preacher. Ptompene means savior of the world or the salvation of the age. It is the salvation of the age who is seated on a throne before his 12 brothers. And I told you, I'm a gospel preacher, and I'm sorry, but I am too much of a gospel preacher to not take you from that audience room in Egypt to the one in Revelation chapter 4, where one like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance is seated on a throne that looks like an emerald surrounded by a rainbow with thunderings and lightnings and voices proceeding from the throne and four living creatures crying out as they surround it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And if you've ever read Revelation chapter 4, you know that it is not just the four living creatures who surround the throne, but how many elders surround that throne? Somebody tell me how many elders surround that throne. 
24 elders. And last time I checked, 24 equals 12 plus 12. And last time I read the Bible, there were 12 sons of Israel and 12 disciples of the Lamb. And I'm not saying I know for sure that that's who those 24 elders are, but I will not be surprised if that's who it turns out was bowing before the Lamb upon His throne, crying out day and night, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power and might for You created all things and by your will they exist and are created friend I took you from that audience chamber in Egypt to the audience chamber in heaven to remind you of this one very important point the story is not over God is working out redemption in the world so point number three as the worship team joins me on stage like Joseph, gave his brothers a chance to make things right in verses 19 through 20. Point four, even though guilt and suffering and pain might be real for you like it was for Joseph's brothers, as outlined in verses 21 through 23. Point number five, and look, even though there is a real price to be paid for sin, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Do you want to hear that in the Hebrew? Vegam damo. Hine nidrash, vegam, and also damo, his blood. Hine, right now, nidrash, is demanded. Even though there's a real price for sin, compassion, point number six, and grace are real too. Aren't you glad that compassion and grace are real too? How do I know that they're real too? Compassion, let me break it down for you. Joseph, what did he do? He turned away from his confessing brothers, and he wept in verse 24. He showed compassion. Let me now take you to Jesus, the Savior of the world, who turned away from the tomb of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 35, and Jesus wept. Let me take you back to Joseph, who gave his brothers not just food to return home to their families, but all their money in their packs. Let me take you now to Jesus, who's the one being spoken of in Isaiah chapter 55, when it says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water, you who have no money. This could make you weep. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is what Jesus says to you. Friend, Jesus gives the life that you could never afford. That's grace. That's grace. So, point number seven, though your heart may fail you from time to time, like it did for Joseph's brothers when they discovered the money in their bags, remember, point number eight, like in verse 28, that it is ultimately God who is at work here. And we do not <laughs> have the crisis of belief that those brothers had because we have met the Christ and we know that God is not only at work, but that he is at work both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And don't you know the story of Joseph? I don't want to spoil it, but it will turn out that what God was doing through Joseph was good, very good for his brothers. So point number nine, in your seasons of sorrow and cataclysm, this is what Jacob is suffering through here. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Verse 36, part B. Remember who Jacob is. 
Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. These are the patriarchs through whom the promise of God was meted to his people. And you can bet that Jacob thought this was pretty much a bum deal that here, nearing the end of his life, he is going to be bereaved of two more of his sons. Didn't I tell you off the top that trouble is going to keep on coming? This is why you need to keep coming to Jesus, because only Jesus will do. And in light of who Jesus is, and in light of what Jesus has done, remember that unlike Jacob's biggest fear, you don't have to go down to Sheol, because in the words of the creeds of the church, Jesus Christ already descended unto hell, and while he was there, he took the keys of sin and death, and hell. And church, you know what that Jesus did then? He came back. How about you go ahead and tell that to your biggest fear?